Well, have you ever heard the phrase, it's the thought that counts? It's pretty common. I'm sure you've said it this week. It's the thought that counts, right? It's kind of like a way of, of fit, reconciling the gap between reality as it is and like what we wish reality was. Uh, I took a little poll on my Instagram because that's what you do with hypothetical questions. What comes to mind when you think it's the thought that counts? Here's what some of the answers were. In the first 30 seconds, somebody responded and said, disappointment. Single, one word answer, disappointment. Pretty fair. <laughs> I love this one. Somebody said, bless your heart. And you have to say it with an old Southern accent. Oh, bless your little heart. What a, what a beautiful little drawing. Bless your heart. I'm going to put that right on the refrigerator. It's a thought that counts. Somebody said it's something you say when you fail, which is very accurate. This one was saucy. Somebody said lazy millennials. <laughs> I know somebody in here is like, those are synonyms. It's the same thing. Hey, not all of us are bad. I'm just saying. Our Butte campus pastor, Sam Gonzalez, replied and said, bologna sandwiches, which... I honestly have no idea what he was talking about, but I haven't had a bologna sandwich since like kindergarten. But the overwhelming majority was gifts, right? You can picture it, can't you? Christmas morning, you come down the stairs to the Christmas tree and sweet old Gam Gam's in town because it's Christmas morning. And she gives you her gift and you voraciously unwrap it. And invariably, what do you get? Maybe it's not invariably. Variably, most of the time, most people said socks, socks, or some variation of undergarments for some reason from Sweet Gam Gam. And you open it, it's like, oh, <laughs> thank you. It's the thought that counts, right? I wanted an Xbox, but this will do also. <laughs> my wife reminded me yesterday that a few years back, my grandma <laughs> gave me a framed picture of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I kid you not. And I asked my dad about it. I was like, hey, what's the deal with grandma giving us Abraham Lincoln? He said, well, she has a bunch of them lying around. I'm sure she's just trying to get rid of them. It's like, oh, thank you, grandma. It's a thought that counts, right? For me, though, honestly, more than gifts, the, what comes to mind when I think it's the thought that counts is weight loss. Because where we live in Northwest Montana, we have like 18 minutes of good summer after the cold goes away, but before the smoke arrives. And so it's like, you gotta look good when the time comes. And uh, so February, my hibernation weight has served its purpose. And it's like, all right, time to get rid of this and get fit. I'm gonna look good this summer. So February, March, I'm like, I'm meal planning. I'm gonna diet. I'm gonna wake up early and work out every day. And come July, woo, you're gonna be able to see at least one of my abs. It's coming. <laughs> and then it turns out, DiGiorno's are cheap. Domino's is real convenient when you don't want to cook. And little by little, July rolls around and it's like, it's a thought that counts next year. Yeah, I'm just going to keep my shirt on all summer long. Maybe for you, it's finances. Has anybody, by show of hands, this is just a moment of honesty in church, ever made a budget and within one week broken it? <laughs> Almost unanimous. That's, we got issues, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, because it's the thought that counts, right? Like, I tried. I tried. But then you eat out every day. Maybe you're not relating to this because you are physically fit and financially stable. And you give amazing gifts. And we're all really excited for you, for your perfect little life. Let me shatter it. You ready? Have you ever told somebody that you'd pray for them? 
and then didn't? I think that we've all been touched, I hope, by your welcome. God bless you. But the truth is, with all those things, with prayer, with weight loss, with finances, with gifts, and anything else good that we can try to do, at the end of the day, the hard truth is, the title of my message is, it's not the thought that counts. Elbow your neighbor and say, it doesn't count. It doesn't. And I want to look in our time today at a passage of scripture that really illustrates that it's not the thought that counts. Somebody who lived their life with good intentions and lived their life, I believe, with thoughts of making a difference, but they missed it, and they lived as though the thought counted, and we're going to see the the failure and the neglect that can come from that. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can make your way there. If not, we'll put it up on the screen in a second. But just to kind of set the stage, uh, Abraham, we're going to pick up the story. Abraham is on the top of a mountain with two angels and God having a conversation. No big deal, like it happens every day. But he's talking to them and God lets him in on a little secret. He says, hey, you see those cities down there? They're called Sodom and Gomorrah. There's five cities that ultimately are just wicked and we've decided we're gonna destroy them because of their exceeding wickedness. He lets him in 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 the plan and rightfully so, Abraham's heart breaks for these cities because people live there and he can see them. And even more so, he knows that his nephew Lot lives there as well with his family. And so we pick it up in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 18. The men turned away. These two angels turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, he's like, I've rolled the dice and it works, so let's just try again. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? And God said, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And Abraham continues, what if there's 40? If there's 40, I won't destroy it. What if there's 30? Ah, for 30, I won't destroy it. What if there's only 20 righteous? And God says, I won't destroy it for 20. And finally, in verse 32, he continues. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home, presumably satisfied with the response. It continues, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Everybody say gateway. Gateway. The gateway of the city. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. Come over. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. Now, reluctantly, these angels agreed to stay with Lot. And in the middle of the night, this just showcases the wickedness of the city. In the middle of the night, all the men of the city, young and old, showed up to Lot's house, pounding on the door, demanding that he release these strangers to them so that they can abuse them and have their way with them. That's kind of the level of depravity that we're talking about in Sodom. In, in, in a moment of heroism, Lot bucks up against this. In verse six, he says, it says, Lot went outside to meet them and he shut the door behind him and said, no, with a rolled up newspaper, no, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. No, way to go, Lot, standing up to a crowd like that. 
<laughs> not, not so much. He continues, don't take them. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. And even that didn't satisfy the crowd. They kept persisting. And finally, these angels have had enough. They blind the entire mob of men. They turn to Lot and they're like, hey, God is going to destroy the city. You need to get out. Get your family and get out. So Lot's like, okay, I, I've got me, I've got my wife, I've got my daughters, my future son-in-laws. He, 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 he calls them and said, hey, we got to go. And his son-in-laws actually thought he was joking. So they don't come. But his daughters listen, his wife listens. And finally, these angels drag them out of the city as God begins to bring just destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah in this valley. Famously, Lot's wife turns and looks at the destruction and she ends up getting destroyed herself. So the only survivors were Lot and his two daughters. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, no matter what Lot thought Sodom could have been, no matter what he thought his impact could have been, at the end of the day, it's not the thought that counts. And if you'll indulge me, I would love to have a subtitle because why not? Have you ever heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? It's another spicy one. So my subtitle is this, to hell with good intentions. It's not the thought that counts, to hell with good intentions. And if you've heard this story, I just wanna encourage you to try to hear this with fresh eyes because I don't really wanna talk about the wickedness of Sodom. Clearly they had issues, but so do we. I don't really wanna talk about the, the judgment of God because now Christ has absorbed the judgment what I wanna talk about is Lot and how he dropped the ball here and figure out what he was doing that we need to fight against and what he wasn't doing that we need to fight for if we're gonna rise up into the call that God, God has on us as a church and what he has on you as a believer. And my, my hope for this time is that you would leave here ready to take one step forward into the call that he has on your life. And so let's dive in. The first thing that we're gonna fight against if we're gonna avoid the same outcome that Lot had is, is personal compromise. Personal compromise. Before we ever talk about what the heck happened to this city, honestly, we need to talk about what the heck happened to Lot. Because he, he, he got to a point, I believe, that he never thought himself capable of getting to. I think he became somebody that he didn't recognize. Case in point, he was willing to give up his two virgin daughters to a crowd of angry, lust-filled men to do with whatever they will. Do you think when they were growing up, if you would ask him, and like, hey, oh my gosh, what a gorgeous little daughters. Hey, just super weird, invasive, hypothetical question. One day, say some mob of men wants to do something. Would you ever offer up these daughters to, to, to give to them? this insatiable crowd, he'd say, no, of course not. But that's where he ended up. Somebody that I believe he never thought he could be. How do you get there? One step at a time, right? One compromise at a time, one unguarded temptation at a time. And, and I believe that we saw this begin five chapters earlier in the book of Genesis. Uh, we see Abram, and Lot standing on top of hill, uncle and nephew. They have all this stuff and they decide, hey, we need to split up. So you, Abraham, Abram at the time is like, hey, you can go left and I'll go right, or you can go right and I'll go left. You get first dibs, take whichever direction you want. 
And as Lot's surveying the land, looking around, it's like, man, this is pretty. And then he sees a valley, and he sees cities. And the, the text alludes to the fact that he knew there was some degree of wickedness there. And he says, that's where I want to go. And one step at a time, one mile at a time, he makes his way into the valley and pitches his tents outside the city. And we don't know what the next years look like specifically for Lot. But what we do know is that sometime between then and here, little by little, step by step, he compromised. And he ended up in the city. He wasn't outside of Sodom when the angels arrived. He was inside of Sodom. He was Sodom. Little by little, step by step, he became somebody that I believe he never thought he was capable of being. And I can relate to this. I have, a, at the climax of my sin, I was addicted to prescription painkillers. I was addicted to pornography. I was addicted to nicotine. Living a double life, deceptive, pushing away my family, pushing away anybody that cared about me, selling prized possessions of mine to fund this addiction. And at the, the pinnacle of this, I remember it like it was yesterday. At my senior year of high school, I had a friend who was dying of an inoperable brain tumor. And I would go over to his house every day and visit with him. And I remember discovering that he had pain pills prescribed to him for the pain that was killing him. And I stole them. I remember I got home and I pulled them out and I looked in the mirror and I was like, who are you? How did you get here? I had become somebody that I never thought I was capable of being. How do you get there? One step at a time, one compromise at a time, one unguarded temptation at a time, knowing that I should confess in, but I didn't, knowing that I should say no, but I didn't, little by little, step by step, becoming somebody that I didn't recognize. And the hard truth is that all of us are capable of that. All of us are capable of slowly but surely one degree a variation at a time, becoming somebody that we didn't think we were capable of being. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Obviously, there's all kinds of things that each of us struggle with, but maybe for you, it's just little ounces of pride that you've allowed to take root in your heart where you own it at work and someone's like, hey, great job. And I don't think when you get complimented, you don't need to be like, no, it's Jesus. Like you don't, you don't need to do that, but your heart should. Somewhere in your heart, you need to pivot and give glory to God because he wired you this way. Yeah. He's given you the gifts that you have. And little by little, we can become something that is a monstrosity that we would never recognize. Maybe for you, it's lust. Obviously, pornography gets a, a ton of visibility because of the statistics. And maybe that's what it is for you. But I do believe that that takes many different forms lingering a moment too long on the explore page of Instagram, comparing your spouse to that person at work. Oh my gosh, well, she always wears makeup. She smells good. She's always dressed up nice and laughs at my corny jokes. My wife doesn't do that. 
She's paid to. You have a dress code. <laughs> but little by little, you go, you go to work and you see them, and then you go home and see them. You compare the highlight reel of other people to the low light reel of real life. He sees me at work. My husband doesn't see me. And little by little, we take steps in a direction that will lead us to a place that we wouldn't recognize if we got there. Little degrees at a time. And I believe all sin ultimately just boils down to a spirit inside of us of self-sufficiency. Thinking we don't need God. I don't need God for joy. I have pills. I don't need God for satisfaction. I have insert compromise here. And little by little, we rely on ourselves instead of relying on God. And I think the symptom of this, if you're looking at your life, is the ability to go week after week, maybe month after month, missing out on the rhythms that God put in our life for us to pursue him. Being in the word, prayer, being a part of the body. If you can go weeks at a time without needing those things, that's a spirit of self-sufficiency because we're meant to rely on that. We should be living our lives in such a way that if God isn't who he says he is, we fall flat on our face. We should be relying on him that much. But when we allow compromise to sneak in, it leads to self-sufficiency, which leads to the second thing, which is public complacency. We need to fight against public complacency. Here's why it leads there. Because if we live like we don't need God, why would we live like anyone else does? Right? It makes sense. Now, how many people did Lot need? Remind me. Ten. Ten people. And the, really, let's be honest, the measure of righteousness isn't all that high because he got saved. <laughs> Ten people, including his family. And you might be thinking, maybe he didn't know anyone. He did. So he, he was found in the gateway of the city. And these historians, these commentators that look at ancient cities say the gateway was similar to City Hall. So many believe that he was something like the mayor of Sodom. He knew people. They had an estimated population of 1,600. I guarantee you he would have known at least half of them. We'll be conservative, at least half. He knew the comings and the goings, and they needed 10, less than 1%. Now, he might have been new to the area, he may say. Hey, you don't know how long he lived there. I do know how long he lived there. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Lot lived in Sodom for 24 years. 24 years! And his life was so inconsequential that not even 10 people were affected by it to the point of saving the entire city. Complacency. How do you accumulate 24 years of that? One day at a time. One missed moment at a time. One looking at your phone instead of engaging somebody at a time. One ah, yeah, I should invite them to church at a time. One, yeah, I would join a group, but little by little, our shoulds and our woulds and our coulds, if only, rob us of the impact that we're meant to have in this world. And you are meant to make an impact. But little by little, 
conversation after conversation where we shirk away from what we know God has called us to. I, I really should pray for this person. Mm, it's the thought that counts. It's not the thought that counts. You know what I say? I say to hell with good intentions. That should not be where our lives end. But I also believe that that's what Lot said to Sodom when he was getting rescued. As he's getting dragged out of the city, I do believe that he had intentions of helping, intentions of, of being a light, intentions of, he knew who God was. I believe that he had good thoughts. But as these angels are dragging him and his family out of the city, he's getting dragged past the people that he has failed. And he's effectively telling them that they can go to hell with his good intentions. And my prayer for our church, my prayer for you, is that that would never be the story of our lives, that we would rise up into the calling that God has for us because we can learn from this lesson. For him, it was, well, it's the thought that counts. There's nothing we can do about this story, but there is something that we can do about right now. God has given us a moment in history to take our place and change the world. So I wanna talk about how to do that. I don't need to just focus on Lot's failure. I wanna talk about your triumph and what God has called you to. So the first thing that we're gonna fight for, if we're gonna live this out, is personal integrity. Personal integrity. Integrity gets a lot of different definitions. Let me just share mine. I'll throw mine in the hat. I believe that integrity is letting your lifestyle align with the words that you speak. And so as a Christian, what we share that we believe is that we love God. We love Jesus. And if we have integrity, that means our lives, we are fighting to let our lives align with the words that we say, that we love God. There's, there's degrees of holiness that come with that, but holiness isn't the end all be all. The Pharisees were holy, but they didn't love God. We're called to love God. And how do we cultivate this? We need to do things that nobody sees. If you listen to the morning, noon, and night series, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, you need to go listen to it because it talks about the rhythms of a healthy soul and how little by little, moment by moment, step after step, we can cultivate affection for God. And it really should be affection, not just like, yes, I love him. It's like, no, I love God. I love him. Little by little, we're in our word in the morning when nobody sees and we don't Instagram about it. We pray. Pray for your family. Pray for yourself. Pray for your coworkers. I always love reading this story because Abraham, we should pray like Abraham. Abraham's praying for a city that he doesn't even live in. How much more should we be praying for Portland and for Kalispell and for Whitefish? getting on our knees and pleading with God to give us an opportunity to share the hope that we have. That's why we exist. And it's cultivated from integrity. Little by little, we become somebody that we never thought we could be. It's daily rhythms. It's a daily pursuit. It's a daily practice. Discovering the character of God in scripture having intimacy with him, being faithful with our finances, 
All of these things align our hearts, align our actions, and align our lifestyle together so that they point in the same direction. And day after day, month after month, you can start to think, man, I used to be here. I used to be hopeless. I used to be bound. I used to be laying awake at night wondering what was going to happen to me when I died because I knew I wasn't following the Lord. Searching. But one day at a time, one conversation at a time, one invitation of accountability at a time, one, one step at a time, God, over the years, ends up forming you into somebody that you never thought you could be. If, if somebody had told me seven years ago, that, I was, that I'd be standing here sharing this, I genuinely think I would have laughed in their faith, for their face and their faith, really. <laughs> How do we get here? One step at a time. One conversation. Inviting people in. Develop those rhythms. Develop those relationships. And I truly do believe that you're going to be able to look back and say, I don't recognize them. And then as you continue to grow, you're going to be able to look ahead and say, I'm not going to recognize them. Little by little, step after step, we're developing the rhythms of personal integrity and God will change you to the point where I was bound up, but now I'm free. I was stranded in sin, but now I have life and liberty in Jesus Christ. That is the rhythms. That's the life change that he wants for you. And it happens one step at a time. Compromise and integrity are cultivated the same way. One step at a time. It just depends on which way you're walking. And here's what integrity does. It brings strength. It brings a groundedness. You know, people share with me all the time when their life is falling apart. Hey, my marriage is falling apart. My finances are in ruins. I don't know where to go from here. That happens. Life is hard. We do live in a broken world. But I have never once met somebody who is in their word on a regular basis, praying on a regular basis, faithful with their finances, in community on a regular basis, who is also falling apart when their life is. Not one. They are strong. They have faith in God. They say, you know what? This sucks right now. But God is good. I know he's good to his word. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. I'm going to pursue him. That's what integrity can produce. But it also produces this, the fourth thing, public urgency. Public urgency. When God changes you, you want to see others change too. When you know what it's like to have been stranded in sin, and then over the journey you found life and liberty in Jesus Christ... The whole heartbeat of your soul should be now, I want to go see people who are stranded in sin find this life and liberty that I've found. And once they have, it's like, all right, now let's both go. We're going to go find more people because there's always another person. We always will fight for just one more person. And if, if maybe that kind of doesn't resonate with you, I have two reasons why you should live this way. Number one, in Matthew, Jesus some of his final words to his followers. Go, make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of his Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
We're called to see people stranded in sin and take them on the journey to find life and liberty in Jesus Christ. That's number one. But number two, just real logically, if you weren't supposed to live this way, the moment you got saved, God would just pluck you right up into heaven. It would be unloving for him to leave you on a sinful planet just to suffer here for 72 years and then go to heaven. You would just disappear. Oh God, I love love you. Forgive me for my sins. Gone. But he didn't. You are here for a purpose. You, You are in your workplace on purpose. You are in your family on purpose. Imagine what Lot's family could have looked like if he got this. That city could have been changed and saved. You are a mechanic, you're a doctor, you're a teacher, you work at Walmart, you're a student, so that people who are stranded in sin can find life and liberty in Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. And this, I'll be honest, this can feel daunting. It's like, hey, reach the city, reach the nations. That's daunting. So how do we, where where do we go from here? One step at a time, one conversation at a time. Invite somebody to church next week. Join a group. I don't know what your step looks like. I believe God has an assignment for you. I don't know what that is, but I believe you do. Whatever you've been saying, I should do that too. Do it. There's so much that needs to be done, but you need to do something. I have a a dear friend that that says, your way of doing something's always better than your way of not doing something. So do something because I truly do believe that life and death are on the line. As I close, I wanna share a story. There was a man who showed up to our Kalispell campus the week before Easter. And he had sunglasses on, he walked up, head down, and he said, is this a place for the lost? And I was out there with our welcome team. I was like, yeah, that's the exact kind of place this is, come on in. He said, well, what if I wanna kill myself? And we fought for him to come in to the worship experience. He didn't want to, he was hesitant, we fought for him. Cause it's not the thought that counts, it's the fight. He sat in and he loved it. And after church, he pulled me aside and he said, I just want you to know, I've tried to commit suicide five times in the last six months. And I was on my way this morning to go try again. I didn't even know this was a church. I just saw smiling people. And he took a step towards hope. The next day, standing in the atrium of our Kalispell campus, this man committed his life to Jesus. He took another step. And the next day, he joined a Fresh Life group Tuesday of that week. Two days later, he joined another one because why not double down? That weekend, he started Crash Course. He took another step. Two weeks later, he got baptized and he took another step. Two weeks after that, he started serving. And now this man serves at the door where he first tasted what hope in Jesus Christ looks like. God has saved and restored and redeemed this man's life from stranded and hopelessness and sin and despondency to come to find life and liberty and passion in Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. And my prayer for you is that you would leave here and not think, man, what a great thing. What a great thought. It's not the thought that counts. God is calling you to take one step forward. And I believe as we do, our cities, our families in this world will be changed. In Jesus' name, you receive it? Amen.
Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the grace stories that are represented in our church. I pray that we would never grow numb to the impact that you are having on our lives. I pray that we would be a church that's marked by urgency and integrity and action and fighting for people. And if you're here this weekend and you would say, I'm a Christian, but I have been living in compromise. I've been walking in the wrong direction. I have been living a life of complacency. If you're willing to confess that to God and you're willing to take one step forward from here, would you just raise up your hand? I wanna pray for you. God, I pray that right now, you would put steel in our spines to rise up and to stand firm in the call that you've died for us to live. Pray that you would fill these with your Holy Spirit, with courage, with might, with power. And that I, I just pray that Kalispell in Portland in Great Falls and Polson and everywhere where this message is going out would never be the same because of their lives. You can put your hands down.